0: Welcome to Elixir Talk. This is the first Elixir Talk of 2019. We're happy to be back. We're happy to have you here with us. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with my co-host, Chris Bell. Happy 2019, Desmond. Thanks, Chris. Did you have a good, uh, good holiday, good New Year's? I did.
1: I did. It was much relaxing, uh, but I'm pretty happy to be back and recording this very podcast, so good to be back doing it. What about you?
0: How was my New Year's? Yeah. Um, my New Year's was really good, actually. I went to a uh, a friend's party. He lives down the street, which, great, a New Year's party, small festive thing. Well, I get there, and it turns out it's his birthday, so double party. And then at this party, he proposed to his girlfriend. Whoa, so triple party. Triple party, I know.
1: Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think I can beat that. Yeah, I just didn't do anything quite so elaborate, so.
0: Yeah, you don't get that sort of triple play very often, and uh, it just made for really good energy. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun nice did
1: you you write some code over the break
0: I did it was one of those um, opportunities where people that don't write code that much get a lot of pent up like I'm ready to write code so we busted out a bunch of refactors broke a bunch of stuff you know how it goes Um, yeah so but you know it felt good to clean up a bunch of tech debt and some other things that we've been thinking about for a while but hadn't had a chance to get around to
1: and have you been mapping out your new year's resolutions
0: uh, I didn't make any resolutions, did you?
1: You did not No. Your life is just great enough already. I wouldn't
0: say that, but I didn't make any resolutions.
1: <laughs> nice. I'm uh, I'm doing dry January, which is a thing.
2: Oh, good for you. So.
1: Um, yeah, I really miss drinking beer already. So, and I think it's we're like 8 days in. So, this is like the longest I've ever gone without having a drink, which is really sorry and like sad to say, but um, yeah. I don't know if it's made me a bed- better. I think I'm worse, to I'm be I'm sure your so.
0: English brethren are um, horrified.
1: I know, exactly. They're freaking out. They're like, what's going
0: on here? So,
1: But I think I'm going to save a lot of money as well. So yeah. we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Um, so I have some exciting news. Yes. It's actually not new news, but uh, MPEX LA is coming up in just a couple of short weeks. And I want to tell you and everyone else about it. Sure. Sure. Okay. Great, Desmond. So uh, MPEX LA is coming up on Saturday, February 2nd. It's uh, a day of single track talks in uh, an awesome venue in downtown LA. We have this great warehouse space um, that we were in last year for those that attended. Uh, And this year we have a really strong lineup of a lot of technical talks. Uh, One of our keynotes is by Miriam Pena, who's going to tell us about war stories. She's been working with the beam for over a decade and um, has a ton of experience with like, how does clusters operate at scale? How does a garbage collector work? How do you tune this thing? And I'm... I'm pretty excited. I mean, I'm always trying to get under the hood with like, how does this crazy piece of technology work? There's a talk about the first trillion messages with Flow. Uh, there's a comparison between Go versus Elixir and their different concurrency models. Um, there's a Nerves talk. There's a talk about amnesia and a couple talks about metaprogramming. So if you're looking for like a technical conference um, to really, I don't know, deepen your knowledge of of this ecosystem, like. This is going to be good, and I think half of our talks are uh, being given by women, which is pretty cool for uh, you know young community. So check that out, and then we have Frank Hunleth and Justin Schneck, the uh, the nerves guys, leading a great training on nerves the day beforehand. So if you've been looking to get into nerves, like the system or the uh, the ecosystem, just gets better and better. So be sure to check that out, and we hope to see you there. Cool.
1: Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes as well to where you can get your tickets, right?
0: We will. And if it wasn't clear, Chris and I are both organizers of the MPEX conferences. Um, (laughs) We started it back in New York a couple years ago, and then uh, Chris is still working on that. When I moved to LA, I started up the LA branch. So that's why we keep talking about this.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I will have some MPEX NYC news pretty soon as well. So look out for that one. Oh, I have a thing before we carry on and enjoy our wonderful show great um so we received quite a lot of uh, opinions and facts about our very misguided opinions about um two po- uh, sorry about maps versus keyword lists mm-hmm. and i would say that um we should probably publish something from all of the learnings that we have made from that um we had a couple of people write into us and kind of point out how we were uh kind of thinking about it a bit naively i would say mm-hmm. um and what i wanted to say from this was you know what we definitely don't know everything on this podcast <laughs> and and that much is very evident when that kind of uh that kind of conversation happens but look desmond and i just want to learn as well so we really really appreciate it when people call us out tell us we're wrong and uh We'll do a follow up episode and talk a bit more about like some of the applications um and a bit more about the uh kind of the history about why keyword lists are a thing and their power versus maps because I learned a lot from just um the people who wrote in, so thank you very much
0: yeah and like we would never would have found out that, about this stuff if we hadn't gone on the show and said things that weren't right so
1: <laughs> made asses of ourselves but yeah, you, know, you live and learn and I think programming is all about continuous learning and look, we are just learners just like the rest of you, so...
0: Well, and I mean, I think it's the conversation is important because it encourages people to get involved. It brings up knowledge like this. It exposes things that we didn't know. And honestly, like, I want it to be okay in this community for people to ask questions, get corrected. I mean, I've been in other communities where you're afraid to ask questions because you think you'll look dumb. And um, if I have to ask questions and look dumb... So other people can benefit, like, fine. (laughs) Okay with that.
1: Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, we'll follow up on that. um, But just uh, thank you to those people who wrote in. So uh, that's Wojtek and uh, a colleague of mine, Zach, as well. So thank you both for doing that.
0: Cool. So can we talk about today? Let's do it. Great. Today, so today, everyone, we have a very special guest uh, joining us. Um, We haven't had a guest in a while, but it's something we'd like to do more of. If you want to be on the show, please let us know. Uh, Today we have Chris Hildebrand joining us. Chris is a senior software engineer at my company, Versus Systems. Um, We're based in LA. Chris lives in Las Vegas, Nevada. And for the last several months, he's been leading an initiative to move um, move our infrastructure off Kubernetes and onto not Kubernetes. And he's here to talk about it a little with us. So hello, Chris.
1: Hello, glad to be here. Hey, Chris. From one Chris to another. Good name.
0: <laughs> it's nice that one of you is British, so we can tell you apart. I know, that's <laughs> it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it definitely helps, for sure. So, um, Chris, do you want to give us a bit of background about yourself and how you
2: came to work in Elixir, first of all? Uh, sure. So, I've been a developer for, I guess, nearly two decades now, um seven, eight years ago-ish. I was pretty involved in the Ruby community, came across Dave Thomas and you know followed him off and on as he kind of transitioned towards Elixir. And I kind of respected the things he's done in general enough to be intrigued when he followed on, which also kind of coincided with finding my own kind of shortcomings with at different parts, both Python and Ruby as far as hitting scale, hitting concurrency, kind of challenges that the tagline of Elixir certainly seems to address. Um, for me, one of the biggest ones was in the other ecosystems I was in, inevitably, one of the first things we had to do was some type of a job worker. And it was really, really nice to have this concept I could just spin off a process and do the side job without this whole framework around that. And it's a relatively small thing, but it's something that's affected most of the products I've worked on, and it's got me further into the community. And then this opportunity Versus has you know, exposed me to a lot more of it, and I've still basically loved everything I've discovered since.
1: Nice. So did you uh, dabble in any Erlang or anything before you came into Elixir?
2: Not directly. Certainly not writing code. I've kind of had... I definitely started as a developer, and it's still my primary, at least how I think of myself. But I've been in the kind of DevOps or operations space long enough that I've encountered several things, um, including maintaining a rabbit cluster, maintaining a couch cluster, and other things that, in the end, ran on the beam, but not writing code myself. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been writing production Elixir, then? For a full-time job, about six months now, I have had some side projects that were paid side projects that have some sense of production for almost two years. Nice.
1: And I guess a question I always love to ask is, (laughs) are you still getting the joys of programming Elixir day to day that you were looking for? Or has it, you know, have you hit some edges that you're starting to feel like, uh, you know, it it has it has its downsides as well?
2: There is certainly Mostly joy still. Um, <laughs> one of the last projects I did before coming to Versus was heavily Python. And we were kind of in the process of really tooling out the type declarations that Python has started to have some support for, but it's kind of tacked on. And there's definitely some similar feel to how that works in er- er- Elixir and i'm still not convinced either way if i really like types or not there's certainly a lot of benefits um but that's certainly a pain point that the solution is better than nothing but it's definitely not ideal um from the kind of operations side there's although the clustering and everything is certainly you have tools available the fact that there are so many potential tools that just don't exist elsewhere it's not necessarily a a pain point for me yet but it's something that there's a lot of learning to do around that's not obvious right no definitely
1: cool so i guess with that desmond do you want to introduce some more of the the problems that chris has been working on and kind of set us up for some context here
0: sure so the history of um our app adverses It was originally a Ruby app, and just a quick rundown of what we do. We make an SDK for game developers so that uh, their players can compete in in in-game challenges to win real-world prizes. So a big challenge for us is concurrency because um, you get a handful of video games that none of us has ever heard of, and they each have 100,000 gamers playing at the same time you get into big games that you have heard of call of duty league of legends these things they have tens of millions of people playing these things at the same time so if they're all connecting to verses and trying to get um, challenges available to compete in we have to be able to support all of this traffic at once so the original plan the company went through a couple of iterations but initially um uh, ruby on rails was chosen to do the job And when we were trying to target a baseline load of about 5,000 concurrent users, the app very quickly went nowhere. So uh, they went back to the drawing board and decided, okay, Elixir is probably what's going to help us through this. So um, that's I joined a little later to help help them with that. And that's how I got involved. But because they were historically on uh, Ruby and Rails, they set up their infrastructure to run those apps on Kubernetes um, in sort of traditional stateless web server um, web server setup. So when we transitioned to Elixir, when we started peeling that away and setting up Elixir apps, uh, the default was to also deploy that via Kubernetes, which presented some problems, uh, first of all, because I hate Kubernetes. And it's a total pain in the ass. Uh, But also because Kubernetes doesn't play well with keeping a lot of state in memory, which is something that we do. Um, Keeping live player sessions, keeping player sessions as live processes in the system, keeping active challenges as live processes in the system makes it very easy to model and very performant. But is, is challenging when Kubernetes is at random destroying your instances and spinning them up. So for a number of reasons, we decided to move off that. And onto a, um, I don't know how you'd describe it,
2: Chris, a more like classical setup. Classical is a little weird. Probably more of just a traditional server model. I mean, something that was, would be the kind of the default, I think, prior to containers and Kubernetes really taking off.
0: Yeah. Just having the beam run on a bare instance, which it was designed for, which is what we all did, you know, three years ago. And so, um, Chris joined over the summer and, uh, started this project in early september i think to move every to move all of our infrastructure well like not all of it because we still have one legacy app that's still in kubernetes but to move the main app off of kubernetes and onto this instance and it was a huge project we finished it recently chris did a great job so that's the background
1: so chris i guess first question for you is what was so problematic about kubernetes
2: and keeping state The initial issues we were running into probably had less to do with Kubernetes directly and more with the kind of choice of tools around it that were responsible for deployment. And the setup that was deploying those stateless Ruby clusters were not designed to potentially transition in a way that new instances could be around long enough to connect to the old ones and therefore be able to share anything before the old ones got torn down. Hmm. They're also, because the design of the Elixir code base was assuming that we would figure out clustering kind of down the road as we continued to you know get bigger and scale up, the, there was no primitives in place to kind of manage that well, so we only ever had like one instance of the Elixir server going. And just the default flow was spin a new one up and immediately once it passes the simple health check, tear the old one down. So there just wasn't any kind of time to account for that.
1: Mm.
2: The tools that I mentioned around it, uh, including things like Scaffold and Helm and some of the other things in the ecosystem, they may very well be flexible enough to do that, but there's not a lot of documentation and help in guiding that kind of a decision. Um, The other thing, and I don't, again, this isn't necessarily Kubernetes directly, but it wasn't obviously buying us anything. There's increased complexity with networking. There's a lot more hops between your initial entry into our cloud host and the first time it gets to your actual code and just reasoning about the system was a lot more complicated than i felt like it should be and we just didn't have the kind of setup where the complexity seemed to be buying us and giving us any benefits Mm
1: -hmm. so have you still got those stateless ruby apps as well as well as this stateful elixir app
2: we had several ruby apps um we have one more that we're still planning to eventually deprecate the other ones are entirely gone now
1: okay so it's it's primarily this elixir app that you did the migration off of kubernetes for yeah okay cool okay and so i mean i don't know i I have like very mixed opinions and feelings here because i'm like (laughs) I, i think it's interesting that you went in the almost like the opposite direction of other people but um from what I'm hearing from a lot of your justifications there, it sounds like because you're running like single Elixir nodes right now for the app, um, Kubernetes was giving you a lot that you basically weren't taking advantage of or needing.
2: If, right, Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think that's fair. It was adding complexity to the networking path. It was providing potentially benefits that we just weren't using and had no plans to use in the near future. Right. So
1: then you've basically backtracked and said like, hey, we're just going to go for something simple that works. Just Are you just deploying directly to instances now? Or can you talk us through what that looks like?
2: Uh, yeah, it's I mean basically what you said. But we had already started to do some of the infrastructure work that I've done prior to this move with Terraform. And we just kind of ramped up the Terraform setup to do all the things in the cloud host, except actually push a release to it. And at this point releases are basically, create a distillery release, or I guess that's kind of an Erlang release, and put it up into storage, and then tell the instance to pull down the version you want and run it. Mm -hmm.
1: So are you keeping like fixed IP addresses of uh, instances now, or treating your instances more like pets, I guess would be a good question.
2: Um, So, having come from Ruby and Python and having worked with Kubernetes as long as I have, I still want to kind of maintain the more cattle approach to how I think of the server. Um, It would still be killing it and letting a new one spin up, it's still automatic. It's slower, for sure. Um, A whole new instance is going to be slower than a new uh, container, for sure but it's still automatic. We're still using um, a scaling group to maintain the number of instances we have. It's you know, currently set to one, but once we get clustering how we want it, there's no reason that we won't just use that mechanism to go up uh, there's nothing special or holy about it. The IP is still the internal or like the load balancer coming in. It's not the instance itself. So we still, I still approach it from more like the cattle perspective of that analogy, but it's closer, I suppose, to the pet one than it was, but not by much. Mm-hmm.
1: So you've obviously thrown out Docker along the way as well. Can you speak about some of the reasons why you felt like that was
2: necessary? So we're still using Docker in almost every place that's not actually our production deployment <laughs> in the sense that it is still responsible for isolating everything and building the dependencies. But the Erlang release is a well-enough packaged thing that, again, it's like it, kind of solving the same problem. So Docker provides a little bit extra isolation and consistency, but when you have a set image for the instance and you have the Erlang release, there's not really much variance across any place that this is deployed to kind of reap any of the other benefits that Docker would provide. Hmm. So does that mean that you're using
1: Docker to build the image still, though? You're, so you're building in Docker and then shipping the Erlang release out? Yes. Okay. And then, like you said, that you're using Docker all over the place there. So does that mean in local
2: development setups as well you're using Docker? or We kind of leave that up to individual developers. Um, yeah. I do pretty extensively. I haven't run a database on my native machine in ages. Um, I like the flexibility it gives me. I still use it for a lot of ad hoc things as needed. Um, but I don't know that all the other developers do that. Mm. So the app is still kind of like a classic uh, two-tier app, like you're talking to a DB in the Elixir app? We are, um, I guess, compared to what I would consider a classic app and part of the reason for this move is we do rely on internal state pretty heavily and yeah. there are some things that never really leave that because it is pretty transient in nature um long term persistence is still definitely your traditional database but there's a lot of things that people would traditionally throw into a database that don't necessarily need to live there and a lot of times we just don't mm. and
1: can you talk um just can you talk to the audience about a bit of the trade offs there between Um, doing more stateless services versus more stateful services, especially with regard to kind of Docker and Kubernetes.
2: Probably transition this to Desmond a little bit at first, just because I started into this infrastructure project pretty early into coming on. So I actually haven't worked with the app as extensively as I think he has.
1: I guess the question is really like stateless versus stateful apps Mm -hmm. uh, using Docker and not using Docker. And if you could talk through some of the benefits
0: and trade-offs of both approaches. I mean, I think the overriding question, the first question is, do you want to build a stateful versus a stateless app? And then the second question is, does Docker support what I'm trying to do here? So the first question, stateless versus stateful. Well, I mean, recent history is a stateless web app in front of a database. And that scales horizontally pretty well um, when it doesn't matter where uh, what application is serving your request. You can handle a bunch of concurrent requests. Eventually, it all sort of funnels down into a single data store. I mean, you could be using multiple data stores, but let's assume you have one database behind it. Um, That's a pretty well-understood pattern. Uh, Again, it's easy to add horizontal capabilities. What's different about this is Erlang gives you that horizontal scalability kind of for free, like because it spins up new processes for each request. You don't necessarily need to add different machines you can just make your one machine larger then you could say all right well what if the one machine goes down and yeah then you're in trouble i think you do want to have a couple machines uh for redundancy's sake but we get that horizontal scalability just by upping our memory so that's kind of nice um the second trade-off is dealing with state is difficult like a lot of languages don't support it very well um you know with ruby you'll hit uh the garbage collector constantly if you're trying to keep things around like there was so much trouble in the early days of rails because um like it the vm didn't clean up very well after itself and so they would have to restart it there's that famous exchange with dhh and zed shaw where it's like oh yeah i just restart this every 30 minutes And that's what I do. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. Uh, But here we have a system that's been around for 30 years, and it's designed to run for a long time, clean up after itself, manage its resources well. Like, why don't we reevaluate the question of putting state in our application? We already keep state in the database. What if the database was in the application? So that gets us a couple of things. Um, One, it's faster. Two, um, there's less serialization. Uh, Three, it can be easier to model it's not all good. I mean, there's trade-offs. Sometimes you have relational data you want as a transactions, like databases are good. I'm not hating on them, but I think the idea of, well, isn't it painful to have state in your app? uh, It's just something we're not used to, or it's a skill. I think we have to relearn. So it versus it made sense because again, we wanted this model of having each player session be a process, both for performance reasons and for, um, uh, like architecture reasons. If we lose a session, it doesn't affect other sessions, something goes wrong, whatever. And this is like, I think how Erlang systems are supposed to be built. So we went down that route and that's what we've been pursuing. Mm-hmm. Did that, I feel like I talked for a while. Did it answer your question?
1: Yeah, no, definitely, okay. definitely. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I guess to just follow on that point, I heard someone describe this as like, there's state always in your application. It's just most of us choose to push it to the edges, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're saying that, Hey, I'm gonna rely on some third party to keep the state rather than my application keeping it. So an example there might be something like Memcached or or, or like a Redis cluster or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the reality is, I guess what you're what you're mentioning here is that uh, we we have a virtual machine, like we have Erlang and the Beam, and um, actually those were designed to be stateful, and therefore you're looking to leverage some of that. And making different trade-offs by doing that, right?
0: Yeah. And again, the the other assumption is that we assume that the people who designed this system knew what they were doing. And so we're kind of trusting that, like, yeah, it's okay to build a stateful system if you build it right, if you pay attention to the trade offs. Yeah, there's some trade offs, you have to do some things differently. But you know, when you get used to doing things in a certain way, for example with stateless web servers, you just you learn the the potholes and you learn to ignore them and then you forget they're there and you're like oh it's easy and i think this is similar if once you learn what the tricks are
1: no definitely i guess so you've so you've gone through this transition and now you're at the end of it so have you been running um your new setup in production yeah we have cool and what i guess the question there is how successful do you think this has been? And do you think that the, the investment here
2: was worth it in the long run? Um, I don't know that it's been in production long enough for me to be able to answer the long run part of that. I'm also going to be a bit biased having written a lot of this, but for <laughs> me, it is a lot easier to keep in my head. It's a lot easier to reason about the system. And it's been recent enough that a lot of the other people on our team haven't had reason to kind of introspect that. But I'm still pretty confident that they will also find it a lot easier to reason about our system as a whole. Just looking at the amount of documentation of notes I took to try to figure out what was there versus how I would describe it now, those are definitely a lot shorter. Mm -hmm. And just there's a time and a place, I think, that – We'll hopefully get to or adding complexity will be necessary. And those trade offs will make sense at the time. But the just raw simplicity of what we have now, I think, is a good fit for where we are as a company. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you threw away a,
1: a lot of Kubernetes configuration. Yes. Because there's a lot of that. A it, lot of right?
2: scaffold code, a lot <laughs> yeah. of Helm code, a lot of Kubernetes code, a lot of resources in the cloud environment that were auto set up as part of it. Like just looking through the line items in the bill, looking through the various dashboards in the host, are, everything is a lot shorter, a lot simpler.
1: I guess like to for the for the listeners as well, there, there are really good use cases for using a, an orchestration system like Kubernetes and everything that it brings. Um, I think what we're talking about here is like, you clearly didn't have a lot of those use cases right now, so it made sense to to arguably like take a step backwards to something a bit more simplistic right given given the needs that you had um but Chris can you talk a bit about why you might pursue uh, you know something more like kubernetes or or some other orchestration system for docker in the future and where you might
2: use that? Given how much I've worked with it now, I would probably take a more critical eye to the tools around it, but for just Kubernetes and Docker, I think it would still be my default assumption going into any kind of deployment situation involving Ruby or Python or JavaScript, probably go probably a few other languages out there. I might even go far as to say that with any kind of new project, that would be my assumption, unless I have a good reason not to, But at this point, if it's a single code base, a single release or application, and that application is written in Elixir, that might be enough of a reason that I would question that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because my experiences with this project, having gone the way it has, have been really positive and I like... I guess kind of exposing the beam as a higher component of our architecture and kind of learning what it can do on its own without adding extra tools on top.
1: Nice. I mean, that, it's definitely very interesting to think about like leveraging the power of the beam and what this now gives you by running it on its own. So um, I guess, do you have plans for some more of the clustering and kind of hot upgrades and things like that? Some more of the the things that this now affords you?
2: Uh, we absolutely do. Um, the clustering is something that's on the very near horizon and one of my kind of top priorities for the quarter. Um, the hot upgrades, we could technically turn that on tomorrow if we wanted to, but I think that has a much heavier education component for the rest of the team that we still need to tackle. Uh, that's probably the biggest issue I think with hot, hot upgrades will be just that education component across our team, not the logistics of doing it, because that's... 99% of the way there right now. Hmm. And I, I guess something that I didn't touch on earlier as
1: well is, can you talk about any of the performance implications of doing this switch? I don't know if you've got enough data to to say anything, but I'm kind of curious just from my own perspective.
2: We don't have a lot of data yet, especially because holidays hit and that's going to change patterns in ways that we didn't have a previous holiday to compare it with. So anything would be kind of with you know, a grain of salt, but the latency numbers are definitely down pretty dramatically. The overall load on the system was almost negligible. And I knocked down like the node size a lot for this and it's still almost negligible. So it's almost zero to almost zero, like CPU load memory usage for a lot of the time is we want to be able to handle spikes. We've saved a lot of money in moving everything. Not that we couldn't have necessarily done that, I think that was, those are not necessarily directly related. It was just, we made more educated guesses as to what kind of hardware we needed to support our load at the moment it is where most of the savings came from, but not all of it. Cause some of it was just removing load balancers and other artifacts of the kind of automatic stuff. But by and large, the latency was the most obvious metric that went down, but everything seems to be as good if not, or slightly better depending.
0: I mean, I think as soon as we flipped the switch, latency dropped almost an order of magnitude. I mean, it it plummeted. And I think it caught us all surprise, by surprise uh, just how much faster the app got. I mean, our users noticed it. Uh, the numbers proved it out. And I guess there's just so many internal hops that the request has to take that it's stuff really adds up i mean i i was i was surprised i couldn't imagine that a production orchestration system like that would have such an impact on performance
1: so are you supposing that that's probably because of the networking layer to docker or something like that
0: i think it's just the number of steps it had to go through from client requests to server uh responding sending back request, getting back to the client um required a Mm. lot more routing.
1: Right. So now you've just got load balancer to server and you're basically
2: there. Yeah. I guess the other part of that is the extra hops were probably both the absolute entry and exit, but also like internal communication. Yeah. Also having to go back through Kubernetes DNS and other things is going to add to a lot of the requests that might be made. Hmm. No, it's it's
1: an interesting cost, definitely. Hmm. Something to keep in mind. Cool. Well, I guess thank you for sharing some of that story, Chris. Um it's certainly interesting. I I'm still like I I still have a lot of good things to say about Docker and orchestration systems in Docker because I think it still gives a lot of benefits. But I will say that uh I feel that I understand the perspective of saying that you can get a lot from the beam by not running it in a containerized environment and running it on bare metal and whatever size of server that looks like. I mean, you're already running it on top of a virtualized environment as well, so you can be smart in the node sizes that you're running and things like that. So um, I can definitely understand that perspective. I'm, uh, I don't know. I'd I'd love to hear more stories about this. I'm like, we're kind of like we, we run in a Um, in an orchestrated environment right now like we're running in ECS um, and then we will likely be moving to something more like Kubernetes in the future maybe we're doing a proof of concept at the moment so yeah that's why I'm uh, very curious about your take here
2: just a small piece on that Um, just before this podcast I was looking at Twitter and Kelsey Hightower ran into some issues with Fargate
1: (laughs) oh really yeah (laughs) yeah we um we don't run fargate right now but i'm uh yeah i i mean i think we do for a couple of services but most of our stuff is like we manage ec2 instances and then just um run inside the ecs on top
0: but do you uh want to share with our listeners who kelsey tower is and what fargate is
2: uh so kelsey hightower i believe he still works for google i don't know if that's true or not but i think so um he's been a I, don't, I think his role is something along the lines of developer advocate, but he has a lot of talks and a lot of information about Kubernetes, and he's been a huge proponent of it, and also a huge piece of the education around it. Like I think a lot of the things I've learned about how to run it, what are better practices, have come from him. Um, Fargate is, I want to say, Amazon's like third go at, kind of semi-automatic or helping you along with dealing with containers in AWS. Mm-hmm. And the kind of tagline is that you don't have to worry about the the cluster anymore or the nodes or a lot of the infrastructure. It's not quite to the Lambda level of function as a service, but it's almost like containers as a service, this is their goal. But the first thing you do when you go in is you have to create a cluster. And you still see that in the dashboard and you still interact with it, but you're not paying for the nodes that are backing it, even though you can also see those in the EC2 list. You're just, the payment model is more of a, you pay for the time your container is processing. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like the initial, I dealt with a little bit in my last place, but we hadn't transitioned off because at the time it was still in beta and we were dealing with HIPAA data, so we couldn't use it, but That tagline doesn't seem to quite bear out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't provide a lot of benefit. Um, Google's just basic Google cluster engine or Kubernetes engine is not quite the same. It's still, you pay for the nodes underneath, but it seems to do more of automating the right things and be more seamless than Fargate was in my first go. But like I said, it was also when it was pretty brand new and still in beta.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, I guess that's a question I didn't even ask before, which is were you running managed Kubernetes or were you doing like doing a lot yourself?
2: So we were running a cluster that started as managed Kubernetes and it was still largely that way, but it seems like some changes that happened before I came on board broke certain links. So like you might be able to add a new service and a new endpoint, but the, the ingress wouldn't automatically be created anymore. Or maybe the ingress would be created, but the firewall rules wouldn't update appropriately. And so I had to like fill in the gaps of what it should have done and still did in some of our environments, but not others, which was kind of bizarre.
1: (laughs) Right, right that does sound strange so sounds like you're in a strange position there um sorry we should have asked that right at the beginning because mm. uh, that would have given even more context for the conversation but there we go it's all live folks well kind of live it's recorded but yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah this is all happening at once
1: well uh i guess chris thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experiences um are you are you an avid Twitterer or anything like that? Where can we catch you online?
2: Uh, not very. I would probably see something if you saw that. I'm definitely pretty active in the Elixir forum. Cool. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of me for anything pertaining awesome. to this podcast.
1: <laughs> awesome. So we'll look for you in the Elixir forum. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about your journey here from... Kubernetes backwards to non-Kubernetes, but uh, love it.
0: Neglected to mention this up top, but Chris is one of the uh, maintainers of the Timex library, which you've probably heard of.
1: Ah, That's awesome as well. So well done for doing that. Thanks, Chris.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. Uh, so far, it's been mostly triaging and helping like move issues along. I haven't done, had as much time as I'd hoped to contribute heavily, but it's still helpful, I think, to to paul to be able to let me do a lot of that and work on the myriad of other um repos that he is maintaining (laughs) yes so many repos so yeah
1: awesome cool
0: cool well
1: well thanks so much to chris and as always thank you for listening as well thank you for having me
0: (laughs) you bet chris you want to which chris am i talking to yeah which one are you talking to
1: it's too confusing okay okay well if do you want me to do my wrap up? yeah let's have the wrap up okay so if you uh, if you like this episode and you want to spread this around with your friends please hit that rating button on wherever you are getting this podcast right now Um, as we said before we also massively appreciate contributions back to the show um, so if you have any feedback about this episode or any other episodes, you can get in touch with us via Twitter, which is twitter.com forward um, slash You can get us on GitHub. If you open up an issue on GitHub, that's github.com slash talk slash talk. And um, you can even find us uh, on the web as well at elixirtalk.com And there's some links to mine and Desmond's profiles there if you want to hit us up.
0: We'll see you next time. And as always... Keep, Keep elixering. elixering.